Welcome to PwC's Accounting and Reporting Podcast Series. Our mission is to inform and educate accountants and other stakeholders on today's most important accounting issues. I'm Heather Horn, a partner in PwC's National Office, and I'll be your host today. In today's episode, we're focusing on the accounting for arrangements with the government, specifically service concessions. The FASB issued new guidance in this area that's generally effective at the time of adoption of the new revenue standard. It can be a complex topic, and I'm looking forward to talking to Dusty Stallings, a partner in our national office, to help us simplify. Let's get started. Dusty, thanks so much for joining us today. Looking forward to conversation about a topic I think a lot of people don't necessarily think about, service concessions, and I think doing business with the government. And I think some of our listeners may be thinking even, what is a service concession? So before we jump into it, can you explain what we mean? Sure, because I mean, there's lots of different ways that companies can do business with the government. Um, So we're only gonna focus on those that will fall into what we call a service concession. But basically you're looking for situations where the government has decided they wanna outsource some of the work that they have to do for the public. And maybe it's cheaper, maybe it's easier. Um, or maybe a private company could do it more efficiently. So they use, you know, use their own infrastructure, but then they bring in a private operator to operate it for them on their behalf. Now, sometimes the government will have the infrastructure already. Sometimes they'll ask the operator, will you please construct the infrastructure for me and then operate it over a period of time. The interesting thing about them, they tend to be very long term. I mean, we've seen service concessions that range anywhere from 20 to 50 to 75 years. Wow, so the accounting, what you decide on for the accounting on day one is going to impact your financial statements for quite a long period, it sounds like. <laughs> a very long period. <laughs> and the interesting thing about it is, too, I mean, like you said, a lot of people don't really think service concessions, how does that apply to me? But they're very, very common. I mean, the, the most common example that you'll hear people talk about is like a toll road. Mm-hmm. The government owns the road. They bring in a private operator to operate the tolls and keep the road maintained. But... It's far more common than that. I mean, prisons, hospitals, we've seen things related to state universities, for example. It can be as simple as a municipal parking garage. So they are really everywhere. Why don't we jump in and actually talk about the scope and when exactly you should apply this guidance? So I, I think it's great to focus on the scope because if you are in the scope of this guidance, you might get accounting impacts that don't really aren't really the way you might have thought the outcome would have been. So first, when you're thinking about it, a service concession has to involve the public. You're, you've got to be providing a service at the end of the day to the public. So we're really looking at situations where the entity that's giving the right to an operator is a government entity. So it can, be, it can be federal, it can be state, it can be local, just a government entity. That government entity provides a private company the right to operate either infrastructure that already exists or infrastructure that the operator will build, but they provide them that right to operate it typically over an extended period of time. I mean, we've seen some really long service concessions, anywhere from 20 years, 50 years, 75 years, so they can be very long-term arrangements. But the, um, the thing I think that's important, you know, if you're doing business with the government, you should probably do an assessment to determine whether or not you're in the scope of this guidance because every contract is not going to be a service concession, but until you look at it, it's really difficult to know. So let's say, for example, that the government asks a company to construct a new airport on their behalf, and the government's gonna operate that airport going forward. 
that would not be in the scope of service concession accounting because the government's going to operate it going forward. So basically, the company is simply providing a construction service. Now, if the government instead said, will you please build me an airport and then operate it for the next 25 years, and I'll give you the right to charge the public for that, that probably would fall into this guidance and would need to be accounted for in accordance with ASD 853. But there are a couple of other conditions that have to be met in order for you to actually qualify. Even if you have an arrangement between a private operator and a government, you still have to have a situation where the government is the one who is controlling the services that are being provided, and who they're provided to, and that they set the price. Now, sometimes the government might say, okay, you can charge within a range, or they may say, well, here's your range, but if you want to go outside of that, we have to approve it. All of that would still qualify as being the government setting the price because they're not letting you, the operator, choose what amount you just want to, to charge and charge the public at will. So what's the other condition then? The, the other condition is at the end of the arrangement, the government has to get back the residual interest in the infrastructure. So you know, presuming that along the way as the operator is operating the infrastructure, they're maintaining it and doing you know, the, the, the maintenance on it, at the end, it needs to revert to the government. And that's part of the reason that you get to some of the accounting outcomes that you do with applying service concession accounting because you're basically saying all throughout the government is simply allowing the operator the right to use their own asset, you know, the government's own assets. So um, you have to have both of those things in order for it to qualify. So say, for example, the operator is allowed to run it and there, there's not expected to be any residual interest in the infrastructure at the end, that might not qualify because nothing reverts back to the government at the end of the arrangement. Okay, so then Dusty, it sounds like what you're saying is any arrangement with the government should be assessed to see if this guidance applies, but then you actually have to go through and see, okay, do you meet these individual criteria? And I, I guess, you know, when you talked about that the property has to revert at the end to the government, what if, for example, I have an option to purchase it? How does that sort of factor in to the consideration? So if I'm the non-government and I'm operating the asset and the contract says at the end, you know, I have an option to buy it, then how does that factor in? I, mean, I think you'd have to you know, look carefully at what the option says. If the government can still say, hey, we're, we're deciding we're not going to let you, you know, exercise that option, then they still control it. If it's unilaterally, it's your choice whether or not, then you're the one who decides whether it reverts to the government or not, and therefore you might not be within the scope of the guidance. So it sounds like, in general, there can be a lot of judgment in assessing whether or not you're within the scope of the guidance. There can be. I mean, I think that's probably one of the more difficult aspects of this standard is just making sure, do I have all the necessary parts? Is it a government? Is it a public service? Um, you know, is there a private operator? Is the infrastructure belong to the government? Who's controlling what services are being provided? All those things. You need to tick each of those boxes, but a lot of these arrangements where the government outsources these, these types of operations will tick all those boxes. Okay, good. So it's definitely something for people to think about. And then I guess for our listeners who may be thinking, hmm, I might have some of these arrangements, and they want to dash out and look at the <laughs> guidance, um, where, where can they find this guidance? They should race right on and look at ASC 853. It, oh. it is titled Service Concessions, which probably meant a lot of people thought, hmm, that probably doesn't apply to me, but it is ASC 853. Yeah, I think it's interesting, um, and even as you walk through what a service concession is, I don't 
think a lot of times people would necessarily think of these arrangements using that guidance. In particular, I guess sometimes I'm assuming people think about lease accounting because um, it sounds like it could be a lease instead of this service concession. Well, that's what we've seen quite a bit in the past. You know, even before this literature came out, a lot of people just presumed that the operators must have a lease because they're using the government's infrastructure. And that's one of the things that this guidance, you know, is trying to clarify. Okay, very good. So then, um, Dusty, why don't we move on and talk about how it actually impacts your financial statements once you conclude you're in the guidance. So let's start with the balance sheet. From a balance sheet perspective, it's, it's interesting because this is very clear in two respects. One, it does say these are not leases. Okay, so back to my earlier question. Yep. And then second, it says that the operator also should not put these assets, this, this infrastructure, on their own balance sheet as PP&E. And the reason for both of those stipulations is simple. Both of them require an element of control, and this standard says this is the government's infrastructure and the government controls it if you're within the scope, you know, as we discussed with the other, the other elements. So it's just very clear that you know, when you're thinking about how to do the accounting, those two are off the table from the beginning. So then, Dusty, I know we never want to say never, but in general, <laughs> is it fair to say that you would not expect to ever fall into lease accounting if, if it involves use of a government asset? I mean, typically, no. Now, again, yeah. never say never. Right. There's, there's stuff around the fringes that you need to think about as well. So, you know, when you're thinking about what could go on your balance sheet as either a lease or as PP&E, an operator of a toll road, for example, they may go out and either lease or purchase snowplows right. to keep the roads clean. Well, that's probably their asset, their leases. So you could, but, but they're the ones who are ultimately going to decide what to do with those, with those snowplows. Um, there are other things, though, where if someone is improving a piece of infrastructure and adding to the infrastructure, you wouldn't capitalize that and wouldn't be considered a lease if, that, if whatever you're improving is also going to revert to the government. So anything that goes back to the government, not PP&E, not a lease, but it, you may have other things that you would retain at the end of the, the concession. Basically, if you fall into this guidance, you're not going to capitalize it on your balance sheet. So then what do you do, for example, if you have an upfront payment, and I think that may get into our next topic, which is the income statement. Yeah, so from an income statement perspective, typically you have three groups that are involved, as I mentioned. You've got the government, you've got the operator, and then you've got the end users, the public. That kind of led to some confusion around who is my customer, and so what the FASB did with this standard is they said, look, just to be clear, the government is always the customer because they're the ones who contracted with you, operator, to operate their infrastructure. They made, the, you know, they made those choices. So from, from that perspective, then, you now have your customer defined. And you mentioned a moment ago like an upfront payment. So if a company makes a large upfront payment to the government in order to get that concession, which that's very common, you know, at 50 years locked in, I'll pay you some money yeah, up front, so Mr. Government. Yeah, that's a good benefit, yeah. Um, those will typically be capitalized at, at, you know, at the inception, presuming that they are recoverable, but presume they are. Um, but then at that point, you've now made a payment to a customer. So over the term of the concession, you're actually going to amortize that asset as a reduction to revenue throughout the life of the concession. So that's kind of de definitely clarified how you should be accounting for those upfront payments because there was mixed practice because some people believed, you know, some companies believed um, and probably, you know, made sense at the time that, well, my customer is actually the end user, the one that's actually paying me. 
Um, therefore, I'm going to capitalize this asset and then I'm just going to amortize it to expense. And this, this clarifies that no, you'll have to amortize it as a reduction of revenue okay. overall. So it's a big change. And then I guess I know in other situations you mentioned then that it might involve constructing an asset up front. But then you said that I couldn't capitalize that it's my own PP&E. So how does that kind of fit together? Yeah, because at the end of the day, what you're doing is you're constructing an asset for someone else. Now, a lot of times the government will not pay companies during that construction period. They'll, they'll say, hey, come construct this asset for me, and I'll let you operate it, and I'll let you charge the public for the next 50 years. And that's how you're going to get compensated for that construction. Um, so basically what you're doing, um, you're, you're, you'd need to look at it and say, okay, I should either recognize revenue um, as I'm building it, or I may have to say, well, hold on, it's too uncertain at this point for me to recognize you know, all the revenue that I would, you know, I would attribute to building this construction, uh, this, um, this asset, but you just need to think, you know, think it through. So part of your accounting is going to depend, one, on whether you're under what I'll call old gap, so ASC 605 or new gap, so the new revenue standard 606. The accounting is actually much simpler if you're under old gap because it would say, hey, the amount you're gonna get paid for that construction service, that is not fixed and that is not determinable. I mean, you're, you're at the will of the public here. Mm -hmm. So it would say, wait until you're actually getting, you know, using our example of toll road, wait until you're actually getting the tolls. But you would still have to allocate some of each of those tolls to both the construction and the service of oh, operating you, the, role, you the have road. You two obligations. Basically. Exactly. Yeah. I've got two obligations. I have to construct and I still have to operate. So I'm going to have to, you know, over time, I'm going to have to allocate between the two. Now, under new gap, it gets more complicated because at the time that you're doing the construction, at the, at the inception of the contract, you've got to make your best estimate of what do I think I'm going to earn from, from people on this road for the next 50 years. Obviously, that's an imperfect science, so it's mm -hmm. clearly an estimate. Um, you're going to allocate that again between my two things I promised to do. I promised to construct and I promised to operate. Um, and then what you're going to do is, you know, for the construction, then you need to determine, can I really recognize all of that during my construction phase? Or do I have to say, no, that's too uncertain, and therefore I'm going to have to constrain how much I recognize, but I may still have to recognize some. So you basically set yourself up in a position in those cases where you're redoing that estimate every accounting period going forward for the next 50 years. So you could be recording revenue for construction years, years, years after you've long since finished doing it. Wow, so I was trying to do the debits and credits in my head, which can always be dangerous. So I'm spending money on construction, so I'm cash going out, and then you're saying I have to expense all of that. I can't capitalize it because it's not my PP&E. More or less, yes. Okay. And then it depends how much revenue I will have to offset that depending on the outcome of these estimates you're talking about. Right. So, I mean, it, to, let's just say based on the nature of your concession, it's not as uncertain as a toll road. You've yeah. got a really good idea of how much you're going to be able to charge you know, the public for this service over a period of time. When you're doing the construction service in that case, you might be able to you know, record a receivable and record revenue, so you actually don't have you know, as much going, you still have amounts going through expense, but at least it, it feels a little better because I'm yeah. recognizing the revenue <laughs> right. for it. But, but otherwise, you're just going to have to expenses incurred because you've already, you know, you're doing the construction service. There's no, no reason to capitalize that under any other right. basis. I don't own it. So what you're saying is potentially you could build up a long-term receivable because 
I'm doing an activity now that I'm going to be paid for over the next potentially 50 years, 75 years, 20 years, whatever the period is. Exactly. So it may be a receivable, it may be a contract asset if there are other things that you have to do, but it would certainly be something that you know, could go on the balance sheet. Um, as, you're, as you're going through the construction process. And then as you potentially change your estimates, as you actually start operating the asset, then you're going to have to assess whether or not that receivable is still good, I'm guessing as well. You, you would, and whether or not you need to, you know, if you had constrained the, the revenue related to the construction, as you, you know, continue to operate, you'll get better and better information about that initial estimate that you made. You may then decide we don't need to constrain it as much, so you'll have some catch-up adjustments and Obviously, anything where we're changing estimates like that, we're going to have some disclosure to go along with that. So, yeah, you're basically following this until you get to a point where you've, you've un, you know, said that there's no constraint left on the revenue. Very interesting. So definitely another place. So you're going to have judgment figuring out if you're in the scope. And then once you're in this, particularly it sounds like if you're constructing, you're going to have a lot of judgment around revenue recognition. A lot of judgment and, and quite honestly, just a lot of operational exercise to, to, to keep you know, redoing that estimate every period for such a long period of time. Yeah, so I guess it goes to controls and everything else then that people should be thinking about. Mm -hmm. So, Okay, so then, Dusty, why don't we move on? Actually, quickly, you mentioned disclosures. Is there anything particular people should think about disclosures before we move to our last topic? I mean, not so much. I mean, the, the key to this standard is it tells you a few things like it's not a lease and you know that the government's your customer but then it, it reverts back to other literature so um, you know we were talking just a moment ago about you know redoing estimates and so forth the that would be driven by the revenue standard so you would you know if you have one of these arrangements you're earning revenue from the government you're gonna have to look then at, at your revenue guidance and say okay what are all the disclosures I need to make related to this contract that would be driven by, by the revenue standard. And it sounds like some transparency and disclosure will be important with these types of arrangements too, just given potential complexity. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Okay, so then I know I wanted to touch on, before we wrap things up, I know you get a lot of questions, and, and we touched on this earlier, around determining the performance obligations and you know how you should be assessing that in the contract. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So, I mean, it can go from the simplest, which is the government already had the infrastructure. All you're going to do is operate it. So one performance obligation. You have a lot of situations, as we just discussed, with constructing an asset and then operating it. Typically, we would see those as being two separate performance obligations, two distinct obligations. Not always, but typically would be. And then there may be other situations, though, where in terms of operating, there may be some significant activities that have to take place. So going back to our familiar example of the toll road, <laughs> um, you may have to, you know, every five or eight years, you may have to go through and repave the road. So those are, you know, big ticket, one-off things that you need to do. For those types of things, you need to assess, are those actually separate performance obligations that are distinct from just operating the road? I mean, going through and cleaning it and fixing potholes, that sounds more like routine maintenance. Mm -hmm. That's just operation. But going through and doing these major activities, you know, you may say that they are distinct, which means then as I'm earning revenue, now I have to allocate that between three different things. So... With our toll road, from day one, the first toll that comes through, I'm going to have to defer some of that to, you know, to recognize whenever I do actually go through that repaving exercise if I determined that it was, that it was distinct. Yeah, so it's a really good point. So even though you've potentially built up this big receivable because of your construction, it's not like as soon as you start collecting money, that receivable is just going down dollar for dollar because you're going to continue to allocate those amounts among 
operating, to your point, major maintenance, and then the original construction. Exactly. Well, so then I think final item, maybe before we wrap things up, we've gone through a lot of information today. And I think for many of our listeners, this may be even the first time they've heard a concept of service concessions or 853, um, and maybe haven't really necessarily thought about arrangements with the government that differently than their other arrangements. So now that people have heard all of this, can you maybe wrap things up by reminding people sort of when you're in scope and when you're not? And so they know if they should go and, and start looking at this? Yeah, so again, definitely you're looking at situations where you have a government entity is providing to a private operator the right to operate the government's infrastructure, whether it exists today or will be constructed, but you've got those two entities and that ultimately the operator is going to provide a service to the public. Now again, there's some specific, you know, other things around control of the infrastructure, around the government deciding who gets that, you know, who is the public that gets that service and what are they going to be charged for the use of that, but those are the key things you're looking for. Uh, one thing we have seen is questions ar arising around, well, if it's a, if it looks kind of like it, a service concession, but it doesn't involve a government, so two private entities, does this, does this accounting apply? And the answer is no, not, you know, technically to that, no, that's just an arrangement between two private entities and you would look to other literature in most cases to account for those. Except for, and I think you may have mentioned this, in the case where the um, one entity's already contracted with the government and then they're subcontracting, right? Correct, yes. But, but then in, the government is involved. So. Yes, so <laughs> exactly. And the government is still probably deciding who you can subcontract to. Oh, makes sense. Okay, that's um, very helpful. And I guess, Dusty, thank you for coming on. I think it's good information. And I know you guys have been working on a chapter for the revenue guide that covers this. And so I think the revenue guide's um, about to come out. And so people who have questions here, I think, can go look at that guidance as well then. Absolutely. Lucky chapter 13. Oh, very good. Okay. Thank you very much. And thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Please join me here again next week when I welcome back one of my regular guests, Mark Jerusalem, a director in our national office who specializes in leasing issues. In this quarterly episode, we'll break away from our usual five key takeaways format and instead provide you with an audio version of our quarter end roundup of topics to be aware of as you close the books at the end of September. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to our podcast series wherever you find your content. And we'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.